Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Well, hi there, Zelda. How are you doing today? How was your Halloween? What's going on in your world? (laughs) To answer your question, you know, Halloween was pretty great. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, my kids, I mean, this is their first year they went off with groups of their friends. Oh, fun. How did that go? Even the youngest was with one of her older sisters in a group. And they had a blast. And they got so much candy. Of course all that candy is almost already gone and so we're we've been dealing with sugar highs and sugar crashes all week and it's not pretty do you need some more candy because i have a <laughs> giant bag left over from from halloween i definitely overbought the candy well take that to work sure people <laughs> will eat it there <laughs> yeah we have students there so but yeah, I have no shortage of places I could get rid of it. I was just checking to see if you would perhaps <laughs> want to be one of those. Well, I appreciate the offer. Um, no, I'm good on candy right now. I mean, we still have some. It's just amazing at how much we don't have compared to how much we started with. <laughs> you know, I was telling my husband, I'm like, you know, I kind of miss the days when the girls were really little and we would have that candy for over a month. Mm hmm. And now they're like sneaking it and (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's disappearing very quickly. Yeah. But I do have one comment though for people for Halloween. Yeah. And I get there that not everybody can have candy. And I think it's great if you have an alternative, but please do not be your primary thing to give out be pretzels (laughs) or even worse off brand candy bars. Seriously, my girls got generic Snickers, generic Milky Ways. First of all, I didn't know there was a such thing as a generic. I was going to say, I didn't even know there were generics to those. Yeah, they don't have the same names, clearly, but that's the description on, yeah, no. I Just a lollipop works. Mm -hmm. If you, you got a tight budget, lollipops are great. Just one lollipop per child, perfect. Or don't feel the need to pass out candy anyway. Well, what was or interesting? Stickers, little stickers work. Was that I assumed children love chocolate, right? Um, but it turns out just as many kids wanted non-chocolate candy. I gave them. I had options because that's how I roll with Halloween. Mm-hmm. So I had one ba- one bowl with non-chocolate candy, one bowl with chocolate candy of various kinds. And they were diving into the non-chocolate candy just as much as the chocolate candy, which I did not expect. Well, I don't know if you remember. I don't really like chocolate. I know, but you're weird. And I'm not as weird as you thought. Yeah, this is true. My my, my friend Dawn also doesn't like chocolate. Well, you know, she's a little sus too, I have to say. Okay, well, anyhow. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, it's always been important to include a non-chocolate option. Mm -hmm. So... Chris, actually, my husband, got the candy this year. And I'm like, okay, I didn't even think about it. And I'm like, tell me you got a non-chocolate option. And he looked all shamefaced at me. And I'm like, 
Christopher. <laughs> That's funny. I'm like, you think you would know? And he goes, well, there, you eat some chocolate candies. I'm like, yeah, but there's always that kid who's either allergic to chocolate or just doesn't like it. And it's nice to give them an alternative. Mm-hmm. So, but I think next year what we're going to do is I'm going to do what my parents do. And that's go to like Costco and get full-size candy bars. Oh, fun. And full-size packages of like Skittles mm-hmm. and give one per. And that's, that's it. lovely. And I mean, one of my girls came back with a huge Hershey bar. Nice. Like, huge. And I'm like, dang. <laughs> go make friends you know, with if that I like family. chocolate, I'd be like, where's that house? You know. <laughs> I have to, there was this little boy who just cracked me up. So we didn't get as many trick-or-treaters as I would have thought, um, considering how many kids are in the area. But, uh, so I was like, you know, the kids are coming through and I realized not a ton of kids are coming through as much as I thought anyway. So I'm like, just take a handful, (laughs) you know. So one little boy is there with his older sister and I see, yeah, not too many kids. Go ahead and take a handful. And his whole face just lights up. And he dives in with both hands to like, I mean, it was probably a handful of candy as big as his head, right? And his sister's just horrified, like, no, put that back. And I was like, well, I didn't actually specify one hand, so you can keep it. I'm like, and if you want to use his technique, please feel free. You know, I'll know for the next group of kids. And she was just like, "Um, no, that's okay. She took one piece of candy very politely. (laughs) hopefully she'll raid her brother's stash when they get home but the look on his face was just so happy and excited i'm like i am not taking candy back from that young man i am not gonna do it worth it right there yeah and he was maybe four you know i mean he was just like a little he was just a little guy but it was the funniest thing i saw all night well now we're nearing thanksgiving at least when this airs Mm -hmm. and that brings us to a very historical event that happened around thanksgiving Yes. Segue there. Yes, that was that was very neat and tidy. (laughs) Would you like to announce it? Yeah, we are going to be discussing um, Lee Harvey Oswald. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him. Yeah, I know the man responsible for the death of John F. Kennedy. And for anybody who's new here, we're going to talk about the events of November nineteen sixty three as they happened and i'm sure um zelda's going to tell us a lot of interesting fascinating information because there is so much of it on him (laughs) it's it's, kind of crazy to sort through and then i'm going to get into his family tree and i do want to mention and i will probably mention it again later that some of the stuff that we're going to talk about is not necessarily easy to listen to and i know when i come up to some things i will warn you so you can like skip ahead if you wish. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you have for us, Zelda? So I have to tell you, I really think that one could make their own life's work studying the life of Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, mm-hmm. I do not believe there is a single non-presidential American who's had so much attention paid to their life. Right. And to the events that eventually led to their death. His life and death have been dissected from every angle. And even just last week, an article came out in the Miami Herald that Lee Harvey Oswald might have been trained as a sniper by the CIA. So (laughs) I missed that article. uh, Yeah, there was a gentleman who claims to have trained him and um, he passed away and his Mm -hmm. nephew carried that 
news to the Miami Herald. So that's been hitting the headlines lately. Yeah, I was too busy working on this to notice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, as everybody listening knows, the grand question that's haunted the nation for the last 58 years, did Oswald act alone, has never been answered to the satisfaction of conspiracy theorists or approximately 61% of the American people who think Oswald had others helping him. (laughs) But apparently absolutely nobody thinks he's completely innocent. Okay, that's not entirely true. There are some fringe people who say he was framed, but nobody's taking Mm -hmm. those folks seriously. So, Denise, I tend to think of this as ancient history because it happened years before I was born. Mm -hmm. But when I started digging in and I saw that Lee Harvey Oswald was born on October 18th, 1939 in New Orleans, Louisiana, it hit me Mm -hmm. that he was actually younger than my dad is. And my dad was actually also born in Louisiana, but my dad's still alive. So, you know, he's got that that going for him. And my father, as far as I know, has never tried to assassinate anyone much less a former pre- a president. So, you know, yay, dad, keep it up. <laughs> well, speaking of fathers, Oswald's father died of a heart attack about two months before he was born, leaving his mm-hmm. mother to transport Oswald and his two older brothers. And they moved around a lot as children between Louisiana, oh, yeah. Texas, New York City. At the age of four, Oswald's mom got him admitted to an orphanage that he'd be cared for and at least get to eat. Like, Jeez. my gosh. But then when he was 12, Oswald and his mom moved to New York City, where they lived Mm -hmm. in a small apartment in the Bronx. So his mom worked in a dress shop. Lee was pretty much alone most of the time. He spent a lot of time at the library and museums. And and although he was enrolled in school, he didn't set foot there for almost two months until a truant officer notices him at the Bronx Zoo. Mm -hmm. So... Oswald's taken to court and then to a youth detention center for three weeks of psychiatric evaluation. His social worker, Evelyn Seigel, recalls him vividly. Now, I got a lot of this from PBS Frontline, mm-hmm. and they interviewed Evelyn Seigel. He was a skinny, unprepossessing kid. He was not mentally disturbed kid. He was just emotionally frozen. He was a kid who had never really developed a trusting relationship with anybody. From what I could garner, he really interacted with no one. He made his own meals. His mother left around 7 a.m. and came home at 7 p.m. and he shifted for himself. You got the feeling of a kid nobody gave a darn about. So one day in New York City, he comes across a leaflet about the impending execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, convicted of spying for Russia. Mm. Journalist Edward J. Epstein traces Oswald's political awakening to this moment. This is the first instance we have, he said, of Lee Harvey Oswald's politics is that he picked up a leaflet in New York City about the execution of the Rosenbergs. And as he reads this, it begins to show him that there's a way of finding himself by opposing the established order. And Oswald wrote Hmm. in his diary, I was looking for a key to my environment and then I discovered socialist literature. I had to dig for my books in the back dusty shelves of libraries. One thing, Denise, I feel bears mentioning. He had his IQ tested as a child, and it was like mm-hmm. 103-ish. Okay. And he had reading so difficulties. Normal, average. But he was an avid reader, you know? And so he must have gotten past it somehow. And that's actually what led him down the path to socialism. Yeah. So just after turning 17, as many people with crap childhoods do, Oswald enlisted in the Marines. You know, now that you, you're talking about his whole attitude about going against the establishment and, you know, his opposition and the Rosenbergs, I find it odd that he would enlist in the Marine Corps of all places. Right, right. So I, I don't know 
exactly what motivated him to do that other than maybe perhaps a steady paycheck and not a lot of other options. Mm -hmm. There, honestly, there's so much material on Oswald. I have no doubt there was a book written, probably a 600 page book written (laughs) on the two months before he enlisted to tell us exactly what his thinking was. So whoever wrote that book, God love you. I didn't read it. (laughs) So it's the height of the cold war. Oswald receives extensive training in marksmanship. So what's weird is that fellow Marines were kind of like, yeah, he wasn't that good of a shot, but the record indicates otherwise. The sergeant in charge of his training called him slightly better than average shot for a Marine, but excellent by civilian standards. Mm. He shot a 212 on the rifle range, which earned him the sharpshooter qualification. So he was a sharpshooter, which it's interesting because, you know, when I first started digging into it, not knowing a ton of detail, that was my first question. You're, you know, your average Marine isn't that great of a shot. I mean, they're okay. You know, they only need to hit the broad side of a barn in most cases. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're not learning how to shoot at the most precise level. Exactly. But then this explains how he was, because I was always like, how is he able to shoot JFK in a moving vehicle, huh? And it's like, oh, well, that's why. Okay. Cross that line off my conspiracy checklist. Yep. Okay. So now here, this next step is where the birth of all these conspiracy theories start. Try saying that 10 times fast. My God. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of, that's a mouthful. Whew. In 1957, Oswald ships out for a posting at an Air Force defense base at Atsugi, Japan. Atsugi is also a CIA base. Ah. Uh, See, there you go. CIA, there you go. Well, about a year later, it's 1958, Oswald wounds himself with a pistol he's not supposed to have and is court-martialed for possession of an illegal firearm and put on KP duty. Then, because he's mad... He attacks the sergeant who believes he's respond who he believes is responsible for his KP punishment. So he's court-martialed again and put into the brig. And at this point, he's pretty pissed off. So yeah. he, of course, is still in the Marines because you know apparently don't get let go just for being court-martialed twice. So um, yeah. during this year, Oswald is like, "Screw them all! I'm learning Russian." So he started learning Russian and begins openly espousing the virtues of Marxism to fellow Marines. (laughs) That's not going to get anyone's attention. Oh, no. And of course, I'm sitting here going, everybody's like, oh, he started learning Russian. Well, I mean, people do that, you know, like lots of people learn Russian. Yeah, but at the height of the Cold War, that wasn't something you would brag to people that you were doing. Well, that's true. My, uh, My Russian teacher in college was a former cold war government official he never really explained exactly what he did but all of his you know language tests would start with okay if you're parachuting behind enemy lines and you're surrounded by <laughs> russian soldiers throw your hands up in the air and yell Miri druzhba, ya Americanka, which means peace and friendship i'm not an american like that would help right but anyway right. i digress so in 1959 he gets a hardship discharge saying his mother needed him at home But he lied, lied like a lying dog. He instead (laughs) tried to defect to Russia. And I say tried because the Russians didn't want him, but he did try. He snuck over to Russia. So remember back in the day, one could not simply fly into Russia from the U.S. Mm -hmm. He went to Helsinki and then on his second day in Moscow, told his tour guide he wanted to defect. Eventually, he went over to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and told them the same thing. In his later written appeal, he said he wanted Soviet citizenship because I am a communist and a worker and I've lived in a decadent capitalist society where the workers are slaves. 
So since the Soviet Union didn't really want him, they made arrangements to ship him back. So he was really unhappy about this, and he actually tried to unalive himself. And while Mm -hmm. he was recovering in the hospital, they decided to keep him. They shipped him off to Minsk to work in an electrics factory. So after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989, fast forwarding a little bit past all of these events, the KGB Mm -hmm. officer, Vashlov, I swear I practiced saying this name, Vashlov Nikovnov reviewed the entire Oswald file. He He told Frontline, Oswald looked very suspicious to the KGB and to the Minsk factory authorities because he wasn't interested in Marxism. He didn't attend any Marxist classes, he didn't read any Marxist literature, and he didn't even attend the labor union meetings. So the question Hmm. was, what is he doing here? Shunned by his co-workers, Oswald befriended some college students interested in learning English. For a little less than a year, he dated a Belarusian co-worker, Ella German, who was Jewish, and was shocked when she rejected his proposal. He dated her a little while longer, but not too much longer. Yeah. Then in February 1961, he was disillusioned with his life in the Soviet Union after the woman he apparently loved would not marry him. So he notified the U.S. Embassy that he wanted to return to America. He wrote in his diary, The work is drab. The money I get has nowhere to be spent. As my Russian improves, I become increasingly conscious of just what sort of a society I live in. <laughs> Apparently one not quite decadent enough for him because he doesn't yeah. have anywhere to spend all that money. Huh. Interesting. Very curious, I say. So then in March, now he's still in the Soviet Union, of course, because he hasn't actually been granted any kind of permission to return to the United States at this point. Right. But he meets Marina Pushnikova and marries her six weeks later. So keeps trying to get back to the U.S. It takes about 18 months before he finally gets permission from Mm -hmm. Soviet and U.S. authorities to return to the U.S. with Marina and their new daughter, June. Oswald's two and a half year Russian journey is finally over and they move in with Oswald's brother in Fort Worth, Texas. Soon after, the FBI interviews him about his time in the Soviet Union. According to the FBI report, he was in an aggressive, surly mood and gave evasive answers. Now, the CIA... The CIA has always maintained it never talked to Oswald, but there's evidence to the contrary. And a former CIA officer said he read an agency debriefing of Oswald in 1962. It was a basic debriefing of a Marine re-defector. He was returning with his family from the Soviet Union and was back in the United States. It was signed off by a CIA officer by the name of Anderson. So a little bit of time moves along and he becomes even more surly and ill-tempered and moves his family to Dallas, gets a job at a photo lab where he doesn't really hold on to that very long. And he also falls in love with this mysterious character, Fidel Castro, and becomes (laughs) determined to support his cause. He also starts creating this alternate identity of Alec J. Heidel and buying guns through mail order under this name. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to fast forward to the attempted murder of retired U.S. Major General Edwin Walker on April 10th, 1963. A single Mm -hmm. bullet was shot through a window at him, shattering the glass and missing General Walker, who received some minor injuries from the shattered glass. There were no leads at the time. Completely unrelated, I'm sure, shortly thereafter, Oswald goes to New Orleans, leaving his family behind in Dallas. He was separated from his wife anyway. They were living in separate places, but he just heads out. Then he tries to start a chapter there of the pro-Castro organization Fair Play for Cuba. But the folks in New York who had the organization were like, there's, there's just you. You don't seem to have any followers or any friends who want to join you. So 
you know, perhaps you should slow your roll a little bit. And they never granted a charter. So Oswald, he's becoming even more disillusioned with the United States and more in love with the Cuban way of living. I mean, let's face it, the Cuban food is pretty freaking amazing. I mean, oh, yeah. I can see wanting to defect for that reason. But no, for him, it was Fidel. So Oswald decides he wants to go to Cuba. So he goes to Mexico City because, again, you can't just go straight to Cuba from the United States at this point. So he goes to Mexico City trying to get to Cuba. And then he meets with the Russian embassy there to see if he could possibly move back to Russia. But that was a big absolutely not from the Russians. So he came back to Dallas. But doing that caught the attention of the FBI and CIA. And, you know, it is kind of weird for a guy to just keep trying to go back to these communist countries, you know. So he caught their attention. Now, he did start working about that time, the Texas School Book Depository. In the days before Kennedy's arrival, several local newspapers published the route of the presidential motorcade, which did pass the Texas School Book Depository. On Thursday, November 22, 1963, Oswald asked his co-worker for an unusual midweek lift back to Irving, saying he had to pick up some curtain rods. The next morning, which happened to be the day of the assassination, he returned to Dallas with Fraser. He left $170 and his wedding ring at his wife's house, but took a large paper bag with him. Frazier, his co-worker, reported that Oswald told him the bag contained curtain rods. The Warren Commission concluded that the package of curtain rods, quote unquote, actually contained the rifle that Oswald was planning to use for the assassination. Makes sense. So one of Oswald's co-workers, Charles Givens, testified to the commission that he last saw Oswald on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository at approximately 11.55 a.m., which was 35 minutes before the motorcade entered Dealey Plaza. The commission report stated that Oswald was not seen again until after the shooting. However, in an FBI report taken the day after the assassination, Givens said the encounter took place at 11.30 a.m. and that he saw Oswald reading a newspaper in the first floor domino room at 11.50 a.m. 20 minutes later. And then a foreman at the depository also testified he saw Oswald near the telephone on the first floor between 11.45 and 11.50. The janitor also testified that he spoke to Oswald on the first floor at 12 p.m. sharp. And then another co-worker said he was eating his lunch on the sixth floor of the depository and was not there until at least 12, 10 p.m. The co-worker said that didn't see Oswald or anyone else on the sixth floor and thought he was the only person up there. However, he also said there were some boxes in the southeast corner that may have prevented him from seeing deep into the quote-unquote sniper's nest. Like, hmm, that's curious. Carolyn Arnold, the secretary to the vice president of the Texas School Book Depository, informed the FBI that as she left the building to watch the motorcade, she caught a glimpse of a man whom she believed to be Oswald standing in the first floor hallway of the building just prior to the assassination. As Kennedy's motorcade passed through Dealey Plaza at about 12.30 p.m. on November 22nd, Oswald fired three rifle shots from the sixth floor window of the book depository killing the president and seriously wounding Texas Governor John Connolly. One shot apparently missed the presidential limousine entirely, another struck both Kennedy and Connolly, and a third bullet struck Kennedy in the head, killing him. Mm-hmm. Bystander James Tagg received a minor facial injury from a small piece of curbstone that had fragmented after it was struck by one of the bullets. Witness Howard Brennan was sitting across from the street from the Texas School Book Depository and watching the motorcade go by. 
He notified police he heard a shot come from above and looked up to see a man with a rifle fire another shot from the southeast corner window on the sixth floor. He said he had seen the same man minutes earlier looking through the window. Brennan gave a description of the shooter, and Dallas police subsequently broadcast descriptions at 12.45 p.m., 12.48 p.m., 12.55 p.m. After the second shot was fired, Brennan recalled, This man I saw previously was aiming for his last shot, and maybe paused for another second as though to assure himself that he had hit his mark. The Warren Commission concluded that approximately 1.15 p.m., Dallas patrolman J.D. Tippett drove up in a patrol car alongside Oswald, Oswald, by the way, had left the scene, had taken a bus a few blocks away. So he was nowhere near this at 1.15. Yeah. But they think that because Oswald did resemble the police broadcast description of the man seen by witness Howard Brennan, who fired shots at the presidential motorcade, the policeman tried to stop him. He encountered Oswald near the corner of East 10th Street and North Patton Avenue. This is about nine-tenths of a mile southeast of Oswald's rooming house, a distance the Warren Commission concluded Oswald could easily have walked. Tippett pulled alongside Oswald and apparently exchanged words with him through the right front vent or vent window. Shortly after 11.15 p.m., Tippett exited his car. Oswald immediately fired his pistol and killed the policeman with four shots. Store manager Johnny Brewer testified that he saw Oswald ducking into the entrance alcove of his store. Suspicious of this activity, Brewer watched Oswald continue up the street and slip without paying into the nearby Texas theater where the film War is Hell was playing. He alerted the theater's ticket clerk who telephoned police at about 1.40 p.m. As the police arrived, the house lights were brought up and Brewer pointed out Oswald sitting near the rear of the theater. Police officer Nick McDonald testified that he was the first to reach Oswald and that Oswald seemed ready to surrender, saying, well, it is all over now. McDonald said that Oswald pulled out a pistol tucked into the front of his pants, then pointed the pistol at him and pulled the trigger. McDonald stated the pistol did not fire because the pistol's hammer came down on the webbing between the thumb and index finger of his hand as he grabbed for the pistol. Ah. That had to hurt, by the way. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that seriously hurt. McDonald also said that Oswald struck him, but that he struck back and Oswald was disarmed. And as he was led from the theater, Oswald shouted that he was a victim of police brutality. Oswald was formally arraigned for the murder of Officer Tippett at 7.10 p.m. Soon after his arrest, Oswald encountered reporters in a hallway. Oswald declared, I didn't shoot anybody, and they've taken me in because of the fact I lived in the Soviet Union. I'm just a patsy. At an arranged press meeting later, a reporter asked, did you kill the president? And Oswald, who by that time had been advised of the charge of murdering Tippett, but had not yet been arraigned in Kennedy's death, answered, no, I have not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. The first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall asked me that question. As he was led from the room, the question was called out, what did you do in Russia and how did you hurt your eye? Oswald answered, a policeman hit me. By early the next morning, shortly after 1.30 a.m., he'd been arraigned for the assassination of President Kennedy. During evidence collection and interrogation, police were able to link him to the attempted murder of Jennifer Walker. Gerald Posner, the author of Case Closed, recounted what's known about Oswald's actions. Oswald had an entire book of operations for his Walker action, including photographs of Walker's house, photographs of an area he intended to stash the rifle, maps that he had drawn very carefully, and statements of political purpose. 
In the end, he wanted this to be an important historical feat. This was to be the documentation left behind. He viewed General Walker as an up-and-coming Adolf Hitler and that he would be the hero who stopped him on his rise to power. So then Sunday, November 24th, detectives were escorting Oswald through the basement of the Dallas police headquarters toward an armored car that was to take him from the city jail to the county jail. At 11.21 a.m., Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby approached Oswald from the side of the crowd and shot him once in the abdomen at close range. As the shot rang out, a police detective suddenly recognized Ruby and exclaimed, Jack, you son of a bitch. (laughs) The crowd outside the headquarters burst into applause when they heard that Oswald had been shot. Now, I can understand that, but the first thought through my head is now we'll never know what happened, you know? Right. But the Miller Funeral Home, who had the remains of Oswald after he died, they had great difficulty finding a cemetery willing to accept Oswald's remains. Rose Hill Cemetery in Fort Worth eventually agreed. A Lutheran reverend reluctantly agreed to officiate, but then never showed up. So Reverend Lewis Saunders of the Fort Worth Council of Churches volunteered, saying someone had to help this family. He performed a brief graveside service under heavy guard on November 25th. Reporters covering the burial were asked to act as pallbearers because there really was no one else there. Mm-hmm. Oswald's original tombstone, which gave his full name, birth date, and death date, was stolen four years after the assassination, and his mother replaced it with a marker simply inscribed Oswald. His mother's body was buried beside his in 1981. Now, a claim that a lookalike Russian agent was buried in place of Oswald <laughs> led to the body's exhumation on October 4, 1981. Dental records confirmed it was Oswald. The remains were reburied in a new coffin because of water damage to the original. And here's a little factoid I'm including because people are trash. In 2010, Miller Funeral Home employed a Los Angeles auction house to sell the original coffin to an anonymous bidder for $87,000-ish. The sale was halted after Oswald's brother Robert sued to reclaim the coffin in 2015, so five years later, okay? Oh, that's ridiculous. A district judge in Tarrant County, Texas, ruled the funeral home intentionally concealed the existence of the coffin from Robert Oswald, who had originally purchased it and believed it had been discarded after the exhumation. He ordered it Mm -hmm. returned to Robert Oswald along with damages equal to the sale price. Robert Oswald's attorney stated the coffin would likely be destroyed as soon as possible. And that is the very brief, although it felt very long, explanation of Lee Harvey Oswald, why he is a household name. And there's so very, very much more to read on him. And I wish you the very best of luck, you know, combing through all those tomes. Uh, Yeah. And I don't know if um, the generations after Gen X understand quite the degree that it was still being talked about. When we were kids and teenagers. Mm -hmm. And there was even the movie JFK with Kevin Costner in it. I mean, it was a whole thing still. And part of that's because our boomer parents and their parents, our grandparents, remembered it. And they never... I mean, you can go up to anybody in their 70s today mm-hmm. and go, what happened on November 22nd, 1963? And they'll tell you exactly what happened and what they were doing at that moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's as powerful as 9-11 for our generation. Yeah. And for Gen Z, there'll they'll be something. Probably the pandemic. Yeah. Well, and, you know, JFK was such a popular president. I mean, he had mm-hmm. enemies, as a president always does. But, oh, yeah. you know, that was the Camelot, right? This was a, a new rise of, yeah. you know, American pride. 
And then, of course, after JFK was assassinated, his brother was assassinated. And this seemed to kind of mark a sort of end of this optimism that had been cultivated through the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I have a couple things to discuss before we get into his family tree. And his family tree has a lot. Um, I meant to say this at the top of the show, but I forgot. And that is, we have another review. <gasps> no way. Yes. I'm so excited. Thanks, guys. Keep sending in the reviews. It gets us all excited here. So here's our latest review. This is from Rocky for Real. And it says, not only can you hear the bond these two have through the episodes with their loving and close banter up top, letting us a little in on who they are. The show is tight. Well-researched, interesting content fill the podcast. Family Trees were always my favorite projects in high school, and this is one of my favorite spooky pods. You can't choose your family, but you can choose your podcast. Oh, I love that. That's so nice. Thank you so much. Yeah. So thank you. (laughs) Um, Also, I have a corrections corner for last episode from some of the things that we discussed. Um, In the last episode, we were talking about the Amityville Horror and Ronald DeFeo Jr. During that episode... I said the movie starred Josh Brolin. That was incorrect. It was his father, James Brolin. (laughs) Josh Brolin is in the movie Dune right now. He was way too young to be doing that because he's close to our age. We should take a a moment, though, to appreciate Josh Brolin because he's a fine man. Yeah, Mm -hmm, he is. (laughs) Goonies. Just watch the Goonies and you'll appreciate Gen X on this one. Okay. Now, Ronald only married, I said he married four times. Actually, he only married three times while in prison, and that included Geraldine. Also, in Geraldine's affidavit that I read from 1991, she lied by claiming she had never been married to DeFeo. I never corrected that, because she did get married in 1989. Um, In 1993, DeFeo divorced Geraldine, and DeFeo v. DeFeo filed in Ulster County. Oh, he claimed she abandoned him in 1991, around the same time she filed the affidavit. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, we discussed briefly Benito Mussolini. Yes. And there was a question posed, did he really have much to do during World War II other than saying, hey, I support Hitler? Mm-hmm. He did. <laughs> he, um, I had to look it up because I couldn't remember myself. I mean, so much of the history is focused on Hitler mm-hmm. that you, you some, and Japan that you forget about the other countries involved. He declared war on England and France in 1940 and did in fact fight. The Grand Council though was summoned by Mussolini in 1943. He was wanting some things done, but it backfired on him as they held a vote of no confidence in him. Mussolini tried ignoring the council and doing whatever he wanted anyway. He thought of the Grand Council as advisory only. Mm. Well, this failed because they had him arrested. So he would never be in charge of all of Italy again, although he tried, but failed before his death in 1945. Wow. So now all business has been dealt with. Let's move on to (laughs) Harvey Oswald's family tree. And like I said at the top, we have a lot of stuff to talk about and some things might be difficult for some of you, including the discussion of suicide. So some quick notes. Zelda was talking about his wife, Marina. They had two daughters, not just June. Their second daughter, Rachel, was born almost exactly a month before the assassination. So she never met her father. Mm. Both of his children are married now and have children of their own. But life for them has not exactly been easy Mm -hmm. in in terms of all the attention on Lee Harvey Oswald, because that's how huge 
his name is. Were they able to change their last name? Because that would be like one of the first things I would do. Well, they did. And I'm going to get to that. So both daughters, June and Rachel, have spoken to the press several times since they've become adults. Mm -hmm. And whenever they do speak to the press, they go by the surname of their stepfather, Porter. But they go like June Oswald Porter, Rachel Oswald Porter. Okay. And they have also asked the press not to reveal their married names Mm -hmm. so they can stay in anonymity. And that's why I'm not going to reveal their married names. Their grandmother, Marguerite's files on their father were donated to Texas Christian University Library in 1981 after her death by Marguerite's son, Robert Oswald Jr. When the daughters became aware of this, they moved to get possession of the papers, requesting that TCU give them possession. Hmm. TCU refused. Mm -hmm. And there was even an article about the whole thing. But they did say, oh, we'll allow them to come see it any time. I never saw a resolution on whether or not they ever went to court on it. But there was indications from June that that was under consideration. Okay. Because they thought they should have their father's papers. And I can't say I disagree, but. Well, it's a hard call because, I mean, they were in Robert's possession, presumably his. I mean, how else would he have gotten them? They were in the grandmother's possession and he was the um, executor of the will. I believe he was distributing everything. So I don't know all the details of that, though. So Mm -hmm. I'm not saying he didn't have a right, but I could see where they would want to have what was their father's. The daughters also sued the National Enquirer in 1982. Good. A lawsuit that was settled. The National Enquirer had called them social outcasts, unable to have friends or anything. That's mean. Yeah, well, it's not like the National Enquirer is known for being nice. So rude. I know. At the time of the settlement, June was attending Harvard and Rachel, the University of Texas. She got into Harvard? Good on her. That's a smarty. And she was, I don't know whatever happened to this. She was going, she was trying to be a journalist herself. Good on her. That's awesome. In 1995, Norman Mailer came out with a book on Lee Harvey Oswald called Oswald's Tale, an American Mystery. And this prompted June to give an interview to reporter Steve Salerno in the New York Times. And the interview was splashed across papers nationwide. And it's very fascinating. So I'm going to post that on the website. I'm not going to get into all the details here, but it really is a good interview. Now, their mother, Marina, married Kenneth Jess Porter on June 1st, 1965. He never adopted her girls, but did raise them. And they did take his last name as a way to kind of deflect from the Oswald. Marina and Kenneth divorced in 1974, but reconciled. As far as I can tell, they are still together and they are both still alive. Now, just two months after they first married in 1965, I found some interesting newspaper articles because she accused him of slapping her and threatening her with a gun. Oh, wow. He claimed it was a publicity stunt by Marina. Wow. So I don't know. Marina and Kenneth had their own child, a son in 1966. And that's all I'm going to get into with her. But Marina's been in the newspapers a lot more often than her daughters over the years. Now, Lee had two older brothers, one a half-brother from his mother's first marriage. The half-brother, who we'll get to in a little bit, didn't face as much press because he had a different last name, whereas his brother Robert became well-known to the press over the years. And I'm not going to get too deep because a lot of this was explored during the Warren Commission. And if you want to know more about his brothers in a lot more depth, just go find the Warren Commission notes. Oh my gosh, it's deep and it's long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Robert Edward Lee Oswald Jr. was born in 1934. 
and he joined the Marines in 1952 and served time in the Korean War. After he returned from Korea, he met and married his wife, Veda Marie Mercer, in July 1937 in Texas. I believe she might still be living, but I'm not sure. Robert died in 2017, and she was listed as living at that time, and I haven't seen any death notice on her yet. He believed his brother acted alone. And you discussed how there was the exhumation of Lee's body. Mm-hmm. Well, I know a little bit more details, and uh, I'm going to discuss them very briefly. In 1980, Marina decided she wanted to exhume Lee's body to make sure it wasn't a Russian agent. She was in on this with British author Michael Edows, Edows mm. and writing. they were busy writing a book. Oh, my God. Robert opposed the exhumation, seeing it as not only unnecessary, but it would cause mental anguish. Mm-hmm. And he battled her in court. In fact, the battle to exhume him went on for over a year. Ultimately, Marina, as Lee's wife, was given the right to exhume him. Wow. And as you said, it was replaced and reburied once the forensics confirmed it was him in the coffin. Okay, so let's start talking about Lee's parents. Both of Lee's parents were divorced before marrying each other. So their marriage to each other was not a first marriage. So Sergeant Robert Lee Edward Oswald Sr., was born in New Orleans in March 1896. In 1919, he served in World War I, hence his title of sergeant. Then on the 1st of November, 1920, he married a woman four years his senior, Margaret Keating. Robert would work as an insurance agent while Margaret stayed at home, like most typical marriages of the time. The marriage lasted a good long while, just over 12 years, Hmm. when they divorced in January 1933. And as far as I've been able to ascertain, they had no children. Hmm. Marguerite Frances Clavery was born in July 1907, also in New Orleans. In 1922, at the age of 15 or thereabouts, Marguerite dropped out of high school after completing her freshman year. On August 8, 1929, she married Edward John Pick Jr. in Mississippi. They would separate in 1931 before Marguerite gave birth to their son, John. So she's pregnant and they're, they're not together anymore. When they divorced, Marguerite told her family that Edward did not want to have children and refused to support their son. What an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, he did provide financial support. However, he would only see John a handful of times when he was little and then not again until he was 16. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it sounds like, uh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if he left her when he found out she was pregnant, if that's the case. Mm -hmm. Now, Robert and Marguerite married in July 1933 in New Orleans. Robert was 37, Marguerite 26. In April 1934, they would have Robert. In early 1939, they would have found out she was expecting a baby. But two months before Lee was born, as you had mentioned earlier, Robert died while mowing the lawn. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's likely this was a huge blow for the family, especially financially. Mm -hmm. In the 1940 census, Marguerite was not working. She was at home with her three sons. The house at 2109 Bartholomew Street in New Orleans was reported as being valued at $5,000. They had a boarder in the home with them, but it was likely not enough. By 1944, Marguerite remarried, this time to Boston-born Edwin Albert Ekdahl, 12 years her senior and they moved to Dallas, Texas. 
Marguerite and Edwin would separate two years later and divorce in 1948. Now, Marguerite's oldest, John, joined the U.S. Coast Guard at this time, likely 1950-1951, at the age of 17 or 18. And much like Lee, he did it as a minor. And he did not graduate from high school, but he did get his GED in 1957. Oh, good on him. Yeah, he was stationed in St. George on Staten Island, New York. It was there that he'd meet his wife, Marge Furman. They were both teens when they married on Staten Island in August 1951. From all accounts of her sons, Marguerite moved around a lot with her kids, and as you mentioned as well, particularly with Lee. In 1952, Marguerite and her youngest son came for a visit with John and Marge at their Manhattan apartment. But it turns out mom intended to live with newlyweds, not just merely visit. And this didn't go very well because mom did not like Marge. And then Lee threatened his sister-in-law with a knife. Yeah, that's not going to make you very welcome for very long. Yeah. So this didn't work out. Her son, John, at the time was living on the Upper East Side of Manhattan at 325 East 92nd Street. By October, they're gone because of the conflict with the the new Mm in-law, conflict with the son. Mm -hmm. So by October, she and Lee had moved to the Bronx, as you mentioned, living at 1455 Sheridan Avenue. All that stuff happened as described, and then they returned to Texas in 1954 and then headed back to New Orleans in 1956, where Lee enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps one week before turning 17. Oh, wow. He didn't start until he was 17, but he enlisted a week before his 17th birthday. Marguerite always believed her son to be completely innocent and was one to claim there was a conspiracy. God bless her. Yeah. She might not have been a great mom, but she did love him. Yeah. Prior to the events of November 22nd, she worked as a private nurse. After the arrest of her son, Marguerite claimed no one would hire her anymore. At the time of her death on January 17, 1981, Marguerite was alone. Her family no longer had anything to do with her. Oh my gosh. In fact, she would tell reporters that she hadn't spoken to any of them since 1963. That is heartbreaking. It is. It really is. And and the thing is, though, I feel bad for her, but I feel worse for her kids that yes. they had such an asshole for a mom that they mm-hmm. the best way to stay mentally healthy was just to completely break ties. Yeah, because back then, breaking ties with your parent was almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you, you still get some people that will judge you for it now if you mm-hmm. cut off. But back then, it was even worse. Mm-hmm. Marguerite would spend her final years in seclusion before being admitted to Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth two months prior to her death. In her obituary, I found the following quote from her doctor, Dr. John Johnson. She was alone and estranged from her family and had to make all the decisions concerning her own care and welfare. She was quite courageous. At the time, the doctor wouldn't reveal what type of cancer she had, but I've seen her death certificate. And her cause of death on her death certificate listed sepsis with ovarian cancer as a contributory cause. Oh my gosh. She was 73. That is a painful way to go. Yes. Now, as Marguerite's maiden name suggests, Claverie, she had French ancestry. But she also had a significant amount of German and Dutch ancestry. Let's talk about her parents. Marguerite's father was John Marshall. 
spelled M-A-R-T-I-A-L. Hmm, that's interesting. I thought so too. Um, John Marshall Clavery, uh, he was born in December 1869 in New Orleans. He had three older sisters and one younger sister. Before John was three years old, his father died when his younger sister was still an infant. Oh. His death resulted in him and his younger siblings living without their mother in 1880. I'm not sure where they were, but they were not in her home. Wow. John would marry at age 27, just four years after his mother died, to Dorothea Eva Stuka, or Dora, as she was called. She was 20. Dora was also from New Orleans. They would be married 14 years when Dora unexpectedly died at 35 years old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's got to be hard. People that you love dying around you. Mm -hmm. Now John was a widow with children ages 6 through 15. Marguerite was just four when her mother died. I can only imagine the impact of her loss on her life. Her father would die in 1930, age 60, on Marguerite's 23rd birthday. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Perhaps these losses combined with her divorce in 1933 made her bitter which would, in the end, leave her isolated from her family. Wow. And this would not be the end of the early death in Marguerite's immediate family. Her oldest sibling, Charles, died at age 25 in 1923 of tuberculosis. Five months to the day after Charles died, Marguerite's only other brother, John Marshall, also died from tuberculosis. He was 20. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. At least two of her sisters would live long lives and, in fact, were still alive when Marguerite died. This made me think that it wasn't only her children who cut her from their lives. Mm -hmm. If she was alone, Mm -hmm. it was also her sisters. Wow. Oldest sister, Lillian Sophie, married Charles Ferdinand Moret, or Dutz. He was a former prize fighter. They had three children. Oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, I love his middle name, Ferdinand. It's pretty cool, actually. That's a great name. Youngest sister, Amanth Jean, was just 17 months old when her mother died. Her mother's death would impact the direction of her life. I noticed in the 1920 census that she didn't live in her father's house. So I set out to find her, dead or alive, and I did. She was living in the home of her aunt, John's sister, so John Marshall Clavery's sister, Maria, and her husband, Paul Voitier. But this situation would alter as well when Maria died in 1926 at age 55. Hmm. Lots of death in this family. However, she was able to continue to live with her uncle. Likely in 1934, Ameth married Andrew Jackson Winfrey and moved to Shreveport, Louisiana. They would have four children and eventually wind up in Lexington, Kentucky, where Ameth would die at age 82. Now, John Marshall's father was Marshall Clavery, spelled the same way, M-A-R-T-I-A-L. I do wonder if this was a misspelling of Marcel, created through a misunderstanding of a French accent. Hmm. I don't know. And then... They might not have known how to spell the name, saw it written, and it's like, that's how it's written. I Hmm. don't know. It's an interesting name, no matter what. Marshall was born in France in 1823. He came to America sometime before 1860, settling in New Orleans. I'm not sure if he married before or after his arrival. What I do know is his wife was Jean Cassabit. She was also from France, 10 years his junior. They would have their first child, a daughter around 1859, Adelphine. In the 1860 census, I found Marshall worked with coal and firewood, but owned no property and had a personal estate of just $500. And Ellen Kasabit, 25 years, lived with Jean and him, and I believe Ellen to be Jean's sister. With the outbreak of the Civil War, Marshall would enlist in 1862 to serve in Company 3 of the 4th Louisiana Regiment, 
the French Brigade. At the end of the Civil War, life would settle as close to normal during the Reconstruction era. Now Marshall worked as a butcher, and but their personal estate had shrunk to only $150. Mm. Sometime between 1870 census and 1872, Marshall died in his late 40s. Mm. All of Jean's children, including John, would not live with each other in 1880. I found Jean living with her oldest child, Adolphine, and her husband, Jean Castex, but I could not find the other three living children, Anna, John, and Marie. I have no idea where they were in 1880. Jean would live to be 60, dying in 1893 in New Orleans. Marguerite's mother, Doris Stuka, was the youngest daughter to her parents, Henry Charles Stuka and Margaretha Karg, or Maggie. Dora had four sisters, three brothers, and one half-sister. Again, I have no idea when either Henry or Maggie immigrated, but they were both immigrants. And we'll start with Henry. Henry was reportedly from Schwola, Holland. He was born in February 1832, and he was living in New Orleans before 1856 and married Mary Ann Connolly. They would have a daughter, Mary Elizabeth, in August 1856. Then, 11 months later, Mary Ann, his wife, died. It was probably not long after her death that Henry married Maggie. Hmm. I did find the obituary for Henry, which I found fascinating, as it gives a little bit of a clue into his life and influence in his community. This is from the Times-Picayne in August 26, 1889. On Sunday, August 23, 1889, at 9 o'clock a.m., Henry C. Stuka Sr., aged 57 years, 6 months, a native of Schwola, Holland, and a resident of the city for the past 40 years. The friends and acquaintances of the Stuka, Lukinovich, Rato, and Merchich families, the members of the Louisiana Fire Company No. 10, and the lady members of the Votigkeit of the 1st District, Lady Society of the 2nd District, and those of the Clio Street, Fraunenferein, are respectfully invited to attend the funeral. Hall of Louisiana Fire Company No. 10, the officers and members active and exempt are hereby notified to assemble at the engine house fully equipped to attend the funeral of our late exempt brother member. Hmm. So, which indicates that he was a firefighter of some sort. So let's go over to his wife, Maggie. She was a German immigrant, the daughter of Lawrence Karg and Eva Theater. She was baptized not long after her birth in March 1834 at a Roman Catholic church in Albersweiler, Bavaria. Maggie married Henry sometime before the birth of their oldest child, daughter Margaret, who would live only one day. Oh, that's tragic. And I really didn't cover a whole lot with the maternal side, just so you know, because there's so much on the paternal side. But (laughs) she passed away at the age of 73 in 1907. So I rushed through the maternal line. Some of it's interesting and I find all the stuff interesting, but we're getting into some really good stuff here on the paternal line. Not so much in terms of just amount, but there's a couple stories to tell that are pretty in-depth. Okay. Lee's father, Robert, was the youngest of seven children born to William Maxwell Oswald and Mary Harvey. I was able to trace the Oswald family back to Revolutionary War patriot Joseph Oswald Jr., Lee's third great-grandfather. He was born in South Carolina, but living in Georgia by the time of the Revolutionary War. I'm sure if I had time and the resources available, I could dig a bit further, especially given that his wife, Anne Carter's line, has been well documented as going back to England in the early 17th century. 
and even further than that. Wow. But for our purposes, I'm grateful to the DAR or the Daughters of the American Revolution for them having their records available to search because that's how I found Joseph and Anne. And I trust the information they have on their website because you cannot become a member unless everything's well documented. Mm -hmm. Now, Joseph was born around 1740 and would live a short life. In 1777, he joined the Georgia Militia with the Georgia Regiment of Horse Rangers, a unit adopted into the Continental Army. During his time with the Horse Rangers, it's likely Joseph saw action in Florida. If he remained with the Rangers by 1779, he would have been at the Siege of Savannah, a battle to take Savannah back from the British who had occupied it since 1778, a siege destined to failure. In 1780, the Horse Rangers participated in the Siege of Charleston, Again, failing. Mm. This time, the commander, Major General Benjamin Lincoln, ceded his forces to the British. In the end, the British captured over 5,000 prisoners and a heck of a lot of ammunition and firepower, as well as rum and rice. I did find this tidbit on Wikipedia about the events after the surrender. Apparently, a smart officer, a Hessian, and a Hessian was usually a German immigrant, warned the British that some of the guns might still be loaded. Oh my. The Brits, to their detriment, ignored the warning. The captured weaponry and ammunition was brought to a powder magazine. One of the guns was indeed still loaded and accidentally fired. Oh no. Yep. And a scene from an action movie came to happen as 180 barrels of gunpowder exploded. Oh my gosh. Then, naturally, the chain reaction continued with 5,000 muskets going off. Oh my gosh. And unlike an action film, the accident resulted in the loss of 200 lives and several homes. Oh my gosh. Again, I do not know how long Joseph was in the Horse Rangers, but I do know that the Rangers disbanded in 1781. And after the war came to an end, Joseph got involved in politics in Georgia, becoming a member of the House Assembly for Georgia in 1783. Wow. Yeah, Joseph died the next year. He was around 45. Oh my gosh, these people are not out for a long time. They're there for no. a good time. And it's on both sides. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And these aren't like they're dying of like illness, not like illnesses, but like inheritable diseases. They're getting yeah. like tuberculosis and, you know, accidents and things like that. That's terrible. Yeah. Now, Anna Joseph had at least two children, likely more, one being daughter Sarah Susanna Oswald who married Brigadier General David Stewart in 1785. They lived at their large slave-run plantation, Cedar Hill in Liberty, Georgia, near Sarah's family. They would have a very notable great-grandson through their daughter, Martha Elliott Stewart, President Theodore Roosevelt. Whoa. Yes, Theodore Roosevelt would have been Lee's third cousin once removed. That's cool. Yeah. And of course, their great-great-granddaughter was Eleanor Roosevelt, as she was Theodore's niece. Wow. That's very cool. Yeah. Their other child was Thomas Hepworth Oswald Sr., the father of Lee's great-grandfather, Colonel Thomas Hepworth Oswald Jr. Colonel Oswald was born in March 1791 in Liberty County, Georgia. He was raised in a family that owned slaves and saw nothing wrong with that. So naturally, he continued to enslave humans who deserved much better than that. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, in 1816, he married Ann Turner Saunders. He was 25, she 13. Yeah. That's 
I have no words. And as far as I can tell, this is accurate, but I keep hoping I'm wrong because it just disgusts me. However, given his pattern, I'm thinking it's true. And so there's a 12 years, 12 year age gap. So keep that in mind. Honestly, I think you will find that he likes his women young. Oh my God. That's so gross. Yeah. While I'm sure the couple had many children, I was only able to confirm the name of one. Dr. James Oswald, born in late 1833. By 1830, the couple had left Georgia and settled in Wilkinson County, Mississippi. Then in October 1835, Anne died of yellow fever in Jackson, Louisiana, at the young age of 32. Oh my. I'm not sure if they were there visiting or moved there temporarily, but I'm leaning, leaning towards the latter, that they were actually living there for a time. Okay. Thomas would next marry Alphys de Corville in 1836 in Troy, New York. Hmm. And I have no idea why he was in New York. Zero clue. But, you know. So Alphys was an immigrant born in Paris who came to the United States in 1831, according to her tombstone. At the time they married, Thomas was 45, Alphys 25. Oh my. A 20-year age gap. So 12 years, now 20. Thomas and Alphys would have three children, Alphys de Corville, Daniel, and Joseph. I'm sorry. At least she was a full-on adult when they got married, though. Yes. So. I mean, I will take that. She wasn't a child, but Still he gross. didn't like them older. He didn't like women of his age. Well, maybe they didn't like him. Yeah, that could be, too. Just saying. I, on September 9th, 1844, Alphys died at age 33. I have no idea her cause of death. Wow. Of course, Thomas didn't let her death get him down. He, <laughs> nope, he married eight months later to Lucy Maria Crosby Hanna, daughter of Luda, a young woman from Philadelphia. This time, there was a 36-year age gap. He was 54, she 18. So my question in all of this, what year was that? This is 1844. I believe. I gotta think the 18 year old had to get married for some reason. Like the family couldn't support her anymore. Wasn't a lot of money. Or her father died and it was just her and her mother. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm like, you know, a healthy 18 year old would Mm -hmm. be able to find a better partner than that normally. You would think, but he was wealthy and we'll get to that. So I would think that. There is that. (laughs) The couple would have eight children. Eight? Eight. God bless her. So Thomas was the father of at least 12, but likely more. I'd guess around between 17 and 20. Wow. Now, I have no idea why Thomas was referred to as Colonel. I haven't been able to locate any military records from my usual online means to explain it. (sighs) Either it was a title he wanted to be called or he was actually involved in a military action as a young man. I have no idea. But it's clear that he expected to be called Colonel Oswald. And I have a lot of information on Thomas. Huh. Because the newspapers were kind. And he, the reason the newspapers were kind is the oldest newspaper in Mississippi was in Wilkinson County where he lived. Ha. Huh. Okay, then. So I was a little lucky, too. As I said earlier, the family settled in Mississippi by 1830. In the 1830 census, the Oswalds had three enslaved people at their home. One male and two females ages 10 to 23. Over the next 10 years, Thomas would have much success, likely because he employed slave labor. I found several different notices in the Woodville, Mississippi newspapers during that time, like one calling out those owing him money and threatening the sheriff on them. But what I found most often were runaway slave notices, 
as they were called. I prefer to think of them as self-liberating or escape notices. Mm -hmm. And I hope they did escape never to be captured again. But they're not an easy way to know that. Here is but one example. This, I'll have this on the website with a proper um, a source so people can have that because I'm blanking on which paper this was from, but it's probably from the Wilkinson or Woodville paper. $50 reward ran away from the subscriber residing in Jackson, Louisiana on 19 September last. A likely mulatto girl named Jane. She's about 24 years of age, a lively, intelligent appearance, and is generally quite talkative. I purchased her in New Orleans in February last from Mr. Isaac Crane. Said girl once resided in Vicksburg, Mississippi, where she is well known. The above reward will be paid for her apprehension and delivery to the subscriber or for her commitment to jail so that I may get her. Thomas H. Oswald, November 10th, 1835. Wow. There were several of those that exact notice, so I keep hoping she did get away. This ad also makes it appear that the family did live in Jackson, Louisiana for at least a time. And in fact, I believe they likely left Mississippi for Louisiana in around 1832 because I found an ad advertising a new store in Woodville that mentioned they were taking over Thomas H. Oswald's old store. Mm. Now, by 1840, though, they were back in Mississippi in Woodville, where they now enslaved 76 people against their will. Wow. 22 children under 10, 29 between ages 10 and 23, 24 between ages 24 and 35, and one, a man, somewhere between 36 and 54. And let's talk a little bit about Woodville, Mississippi for a moment. It is the county seat of Wilkinson County and sits along the Louisiana border to the north. The county had many cotton plantations, like a lot. And the planter community thrived, especially from about 1830 on to the Civil War. Woodville was also the boyhood home of a name that would become synonymous with the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis. Yes. Another Woodville resident was Edward McGeehee, a contemporary of Thomas. He was one of the largest plantation owners in Wilkinson County with 333 slaves in 1850. Yeah, I think he had like a ton of acreage. Not only that, but he had a hand in removing free people of color from Mississippi as one of the founders of the Mississippi Colonization Society. Now, have you ever heard of the Colonization Society, Zelda? I have never. This was my first time learning of this, and it's fascinating. So what did they do? Well, they were a state auxiliary to the American Colonization Society, formed by prominent whites like Thomas Jefferson, that supported immigrating free black people back to the African continent. No matter if they'd been born for generations here or not. No matter what. Huh. Yes. Now, don't let yourself think that this was done out of some goodness of their hearts, like they tried to claim it was so they wouldn't have to face racism. No, this was for their own selfish concerns. Namely, the number of free black people continued to grow. So at the end of the Revolutionary War, there were 60,000 free people of color. And in 1830, the number was up to 300,000. Racism was at the core of the society as they saw black people as inferior. So they didn't want them around them. But there was another concern. And this is likely why state state auxiliaries were formed in many states like Mississippi by planters. They feared if their enslaved workers saw the free black people, they might themselves decide to escape in large numbers or even revolt. Mm -hmm. So for obvious reasons, free black people and abolitionists were opposed to the society's aims. But the group ignored the criticism and pressed on. 
As for the Mississippi Auxiliary, they funded an expedition in 1831 and sent two free black people to the west coast of Africa in what is now Liberia. Around 1835, they would send 71 more free black Mississippi residents um, on the ship the Rover. In 1836, the Mississippi Society split from the national group. They then set up their own settlement 130 miles south of Monrovia, calling it Greenville and appointing a white governor because, of course. <laughs> yeah. In eight, yeah. In 1838, 37 free blacks arrived on the ship Mail out of New Orleans. Ultimately, the organization would fall apart in the 1840s. I did find the following on MississippiEncyclopedia.org, and this is a direct quote from the website. In addition, the society was hampered by a 12-year court battle involving the heirs of Captain Isaac Ross of Jefferson County, who died in 1836. In his will, Ross gave his adult slaves the option of obtaining their freedom and immediately immigrating to Liberia or being sold as slaves, with the profits from slave sales and the proceeds of the estate going to the ACS to establish a university in Liberia. One of Ross's grandsons contested the will, and nine years passed before the Mississippi Supreme Court upheld the document's terms. Another three years passed before the former Ross slaves went to Liberia. Wow. I want to add that while the society claimed immigration was voluntary, that wasn't entirely true. A great many black people were forced to go to freedom, which I just have no words. And the effects of this immigration effort did not go over well with free black people who just wanted to stay in a home their families had lived in many decades or longer, many generations. They saw it as an effort to deny them their God-given rights that they should possess in the United States. Mm -hmm. In fact, they thought if they were to leave, why not establish a colony in the United States itself? It was large enough. Mm -hmm. or go to Canada or Mexico where they would be welcomed. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but with the movement from the society, conditions worsened for free blacks who did stay, with some areas not allowing free black people in the areas they had been previously allowed. Wow. As for immigration plans to Liberia, over 4,500 black people were sent between 1820 and 1843. Of those, only 40% were alive in 1843, around 1,800 people. The society was aware of the high death rate, but they didn't care. Wow. Because they never cared about the black people they were sending there. So I can't help but wonder if Thomas Hepworth Oswald was a member of the Mississippi Society along with his neighbor. Mm -hmm. I imagine he likely did become a member, especially given the article I found on November 19th, 1850 in the Woodville Republican. Well, not an article as much as a letter. To Honorable Jefferson Davis. Dear sir, and... What's interesting to me as I read this is that some themes seem to repeat in history. Some words, and it might not be the exact same subject and topic, but it does repeat and it's wild. Dear sir, we the undersigned citizens of Wilkinson hold it to be our duty under the circumstances, as well as it is our highest pleasure to assure you of the great approbation and admiration with which your course and the recent struggle between Northern might and Southern right has been viewed by us. We have seen you in every attack, and though surrounded by defection, stand up manfully and with judgment for our rights and honor. Before I continue, keep in mind that at this time when they're writing this letter, Jefferson Davis is a senator from Mississippi. He had just been elected in 1849. When the compromise bill of the Committee of 13 was brought in as a deceptious instrument for our destruction, 
We beheld you searching out its fallacies, exposing its cunningly concealed snares, and overturning the arguments built up with skill and labor for its support. The bill was defeated, but the measures composing it have since, in effect, become laws. We regret that there was so little sense of justice left in the American Congress. What will be the course of the Southern people remains to be seen. Had it been necessary or proper for us during the contest to have expressed these our sentiments, we would unhesitatingly have done so. With assurances of augmented confidence and esteem, your fellow citizens. The compromise that they're talking about is the Compromise Bills of 1850. And these were bills that were being disputed over slavery in the new territories after the Mexican-American War and we had attained some more territory. Through these bills, California was determined to be a free state, which Jefferson Davis highly opposed to. Mm -hmm. Utah and New Mexico were allowed to decide on their own if they were going to be a free state. It also permitted slavery in Washington, D.C., but outlawed the slave trade. It denied enslaved people the right to trial by jury as well. And it included this, one of the compromise bills was the Fugitive Slave Act which compelled all people to capture runaway slaves, no matter where they may be. So he's getting this letter. He's getting this feedback. The letter had 290 names signed to it, including Thomas Hepworth Oswald. And so Davis ended up stepping down from his role as senator in 1851. He had only been there less than two years because he was going to run for governor. He lost. And he went back to farming for a short time before getting pulled in again to politics. Back to the Oswalds, when I located the family in the 1850 census, I noticed first he had valued his property as being worth $10,540, and he had 158 enslaved people, ranging in age from three months old to 46. More than half of them were female, 87 to be exact. Based on an 1843 article in the Woodville Republican, the Oswald Plantation was called Racetracked. But then I stumbled on another article in 1851 that made me believe he might have had more than one plantation or at least called different sections different names. Hmm. Because I was trying to find if there was a name for this plantation. And it says, notice, I have appointed Mr. John H. Sims, agent for my racetrack plantation, and Mr. H. N. Smith, agent for my five-mile plantation during my absence from the state of Mississippi. As the article mentioned, he would be absent from Mississippi. So where did he go? New Orleans. In the 1860 census, I found he and his wife, Lucy, living in New Orleans with two of their children, one of which was Lee's grandfather, William Maxwell Oswald, aged 12 at the time. Thomas worked as a planter and held $100,000 worth of property wow. in 1860. That's a lot of money. Wow. What did that even and translate to now? A few million. At least. Yeah. At least. Yeah. You know, the um, dip in the economy in the 1880s kind of throws mm-hmm. stuff off. But And then he said he had $50,000 in personal estate. Thomas still owned slaves, but not nearly as many. A grand total of 13 in New Orleans. But the Civil War would change all that. By 1864, 1865, either his fortunes had already started to change or he exaggerated them in 1860. Or he was including his Mississippi property as well. I found a tax assessment for a property at 256 Carondelet in his name for $35,000. This address was the location of the New Orleans Cotton Exchange starting in 1870. So there is no 256 Carondelet anymore, but it's right at this corner where the Cotton Exchange was. 
So that was, you know, 1864, 1865. By 1870, Thomas and Lucy were now living along the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, and they only had $3,000 in real estate and a personal estate of $400. So their fortunes had dropped quite a bit. The couple did have a black woman, age 50, named Jane living with them as a servant. On the census, she was listed as Jane Oswald, but that was not her name. Mm. In the U.S. Freedmen Bureau records, I found an employment contract between Thomas and a Jane Holt entered into in May 1865. Mm. Assuming this was the same Jane, the contract that contract being initially for just a year, mm-hmm. it provided Jane with clothing and support plus $8 a month to live and work for the Oswalds. Wow. Thomas Hepworth died in January 1877 at the age of 85. His wife, Lucy Maria, died 13 years later in September 1890 at age 63. Now Lee's grandfather was the third child of Thomas and Lucy, William Maxwell Oswald, born in February 1848. Three years after his father's death, William married Mary Harvey. He was 32 and she 21. Younger, but they're both adults. So much better. As far as I know, this was his first and only marriage. And I found a marriage announcement for them. Oh, I love those. It's a quick little one. It says, um, Oswald Harvey at the residence of the bride at Mississippi City on Monday, August 30th, 1880 by Reverend Father Chevalier, Mr. William Oswald and Miss Mary Harvey, both of Mississippi. For their kind remembrance, we thank them. May unalloyed happiness be theirs as they journey through life. Well, that's so nice. Mm-hmm. I was really hoping for a description of the wedding gown, but I'll take this. I know there was none. Sorry. Um, The couple would leave Mississippi and settle in New Orleans, where they would have their first child, Thomas Hepworth, in December 1881. The Oswalds would have seven children, with their last being Lee's father, Robert Sr., born in 1896. The family would live at a few different locations in the city, living in the warehouse district in 1900, likely because William and his two oldest sons worked in factories, then moving on to the lower garden district by 1910. And at that time, William worked as a clerk at a cotton press. Son Thomas worked as a salesman for a packing house and Harvey at a theater as a cashier. Nice. In 1920, I learned that they moved once more, this time to Mid-City on Canal Street. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this was probably not a step up though, but rather a step down from their previous neighborhood. William was still a clerk, but now for a coal company. And Robert Lee's father had a job at a sugar refinery as a clerk. Three years later, William would die at a charity hospital of a cerebral hemorrhage. He was 75. Oh my gosh. After her husband's death, Mary moved in with her oldest son, Thomas, and his family, whom she would live with until her death at 85 in 1944. Wow. Now let's talk a little bit more about Mary Harvey Oswald, grandmother of Lee and wife of William. As mentioned earlier, Mary was 11 years younger than her husband, born in August 1859 in New Orleans, to parents Harry Harvey and Mary Tonry. Mary was their fourth child, second daughter of six children, three boys, three girls. And literally, they had them every other. Boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. I do not have much information on Mary's mother, Mary. What I do know is she was born in Ireland, likely in 1831, possibly in Sligo. When she immigrated is a bit of a mystery, but she was in America by the late 1840s, at which time she met and wed Mary's father, likely in 1849. Hmm. Mary's father, on the other hand, I have a bit more information on. So, who was Harry Harvey? Well, Harry's name at birth was David, but on most records, he left his name as Harry. Why? I have not a clue. I've seen some trees trying to claim that his middle name was Harrison, 
but I've seen no evidence of this. In fact, the only hint of a middle name I've seen is the middle initial A that I found on his baptismal record. Hmm. Now, Harry was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in December 1818, the oldest of at least nine children, and was baptized with his younger sister Sarah on December 9, 1822 at the First Presbyterian Church of Kensington in Philadelphia. Like his wife Mary, I do not know what prompted him to leave Philadelphia. He did have a sister who came out to New Orleans and who got married there, and then, but she returned after her marriage to Philadelphia. He was the only sibling to stay. Huh. It's likely he decided to go to Louisiana on his own to seek new opportunities. I found some newspaper evidence that he may have been there as early as 1841. One thing that old newspapers are famous for is you go through and they'll have a whole page listing everybody who needs to go to the post office and get their letters. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yes. It, it'll say, it'll be titled usually list of letters. And if your name's on there, you need to go. That's funny. These are people who are plugging general delivery. Mm-hmm. So he was on the list in 1841. If that was him, because there was another David Harvey around the area, but it was in new Orleans that he would wed Mary and they'd start their own large family. When the Civil War began, Harry enlisted in Company D of the 16th Louisiana Infantry Regiment in September 1861. This enlistment meant leaving his wife and four young children while he went to battle on behalf of the Confederacy. Hmm. He would spend the next three years away, only returning sometime after May 1864, having been wounded in battle and unable to return. In 1870, I found him working as a cotton weigher. They lived in the 10th ward with real estate valued at $3,500 and two domestic black servants living and working in the home. Harry died two years later at 53 when daughter Mary was 13 Mm. and both of his own parents outlived him. I found Mary Tonry Harvey and her children in the 1880 census twice. In one, she was listed as the head of household at a home in Mississippi City, Mississippi. And that's a city along the Gulf Coast in Harrison County. And she lived there along with her children, Mary, Harry Jr. and son David, who worked as an engineer. On the other listing, William was listed as the head of household in New Orleans with his mother and siblings, David, Hattie, Mary, Alice, and Harry Jr. living with him. Hmm. So it could be that they had lived there temporarily in New Orleans with him and he just included them on the list. Mary Tonry died at age 63 from the time Spokane on May 15, 1894. Mrs. Mary Harvey died at her residence on the beach this evening. Deceased had been for many years a summer resident here, spending her winters in New Orleans. Now, like his wife, Mary Tonry, Harry Harvey had Irish roots. His father was an Irish immigrant born in Ireland in 1790. He immigrated from Londonderry to Philadelphia in 1811, and I got that information from the Journal of American Irish Historical Society. He arrived on the ship Mary on June 17th of 1811. In 1812, David lived on Market Street in Philadelphia, where he worked as a weaver. I know this because he was not yet a U.S. citizen and was listed as a British alien in the U.S. during the War of 1812. He would be naturalized as a citizen in October 1830. And for some of the listeners going, why would an Irishman be listed as a British citizen? Because they were still part of Britain at that time. I had to remind myself like, oh yeah, that didn't, they didn't become independent Republic of Ireland until the 1920s. And after a lot of heartache and starvation. Yep. I think it's likely that he moved to Massachusetts for a time, though I have no confirmation on this. Just supposition based on the fact that he married Harriet von Newkirk, 
on May 22, 1816 in Boston. The couple would settle in Philadelphia and start their family, starting with their oldest son, Harry. Of their nine children, at least, only three were boys. David spent many years working as a weaver, but he seems to have stopped working in 1860, or at least he wasn't employed at the time of that census or any thereafter. Well, that's not entirely true. His occupation in 1880 was listed as gentleman. <laughs> yeah. And I believe this family was doing quite well financially. In 1850, his real estate was valued at $4,000. In 1860, they had an Irish servant living and working in the home. And they, they ended up living their entire lives in the same neighborhood of Kensington in Philadelphia. Oh, that's nice. I found several small articles in the Philadelphia papers referring to David because he was an elder in the church uh-huh. and very involved in community affairs. Particularly once a battle, once there was a battle between residents and the city that began in 1875 over having steam cars transporting people. And residents, just so you know, were not pleased at the prospect of having these steam cars. That is interesting. And he was often chairing the meetings. I even saw a passing reference that he should make a mayoral run. If indeed they were talking about the same David Harvey. But it would never come to pass. David died at age 91 in 1882. His wife Harriet followed three years later at age 88. So they lived long lives. Were they were they still living in Kensington? Yes. It's interesting now because, you know, obviously that was a nice area at the time. Mm-hmm. It is a very crime, crime place now. Yeah, it is not a nice area anymore. Mm-mm. That's northern Philly. And yeah. yeah. David's second son, so this is Harry Harvey's brother, a distant uncle of Lee, was Joseph, a great-granduncle of Lee to be more exact. Joseph married Sarah Hogue around 1855, and they'd go on to have several children. He would start off working as a turner, and I had to look up what this occupation was, because I'm curious, and it was somebody who created cylindrical wood pieces. Now it's known as a lathe worker. Mm-hmm. He must have been good at that job because Joseph would achieve a great deal of success. Oh, that's great. Or he was smart with his money or his, I don't know how, you know. So to give you an idea, in eighteen in the 1870 census, his occupation was listed as ivory and bone farmer. Oh my gosh. Wow. That tells me he was more of probably an ivory and bone dealer necessarily than farmer or he was investing in farming of this which means this is before you know elephants were not allowed to be killed for their tusk Mm -hmm. and he was probably arranging for that to happen not only that but his real estate was valued at sixty thousand dollars wow and his personal estate at twenty thousand today he would be considered a millionaire good on him Like his father, he got involved with the community, even elected as one of 13 directors of the Kensington Bank in 1862. Also like his father, he would become an active member of the church and an elder. Oh, and Joseph was very smart with his money, investing in local real estate. And I think that's how he made a lot of his wealth, is when he got money, he invested it, and it grew. Became part of the landed gentry. Yes. On the morning of November 7th, 1877, Joseph would face a setback, though. A fire at a building he owned on Randolph Street. The five-story brick building would be completely destroyed along with everything in it. Mm. Luckily, the building was empty at the time as there was only one stairwell. Joseph was fully insured, so he rebuilt, this time with two stairwells. Hmm. Then, on October 12th, 
1881, Joseph's world would be turned upside down. And this is an article from the Philadelphia Times on October 13, 1881. Part of this may be difficult to listen to. So if you want to fast forward about 30 seconds to a minute, can I do understood. that? You can. But, you know, <laughs> sorry. I'm just giving you kind of a heads up. It's not all difficult. There's just a couple parts that are hard to hear. Okay. And I, I'm, th- I'm I felt braced. like I would be doing a disservice to not include all most of it. And here's the headline. Terror-stricken women. Five lives lost at a burning mill. The ill-fated Randolph Mills, for the third time, were ravaged by the flames last night. But this time, the conflagration was attended by a disaster which will eventually result in the loss of nearly a dozen lives. The mills were a brick four stories in height with a basement, and although about 200 hands were ordinarily employed in the daytime, there were no outside fire escapes and only two stairways for egress. The calamitous scene was the result of a panic among the working women upon realizing the fact that their escape by one of these stairways was cut off by the flames. They became terror-stricken, and in spite of the warning cries of those in the street, precipitated themselves from the third and fourth story windows upon the cruel pavements and cobblestones below. They were followed in this suicidal plunge by several of their male associates, but others, more cool-headed, availed themselves of a bridge connecting with another building on 5th Street, and bursting open a door found their way out in that way. Charles H. Landenberger was the proprietor and manufactured woolen dress goods. The Weston Electric Light was in use in the factory but had not been working satisfactorily. About 45 hands, of whom nearly a dozen were women, were working on the third and fourth floors. A quarter before 10 o'clock, Foreman Atkinson went down to the basement to see what caused the lights to flicker. He then passed up to the third floor and was descending again to the second when he was suddenly surrounded on all sides by flames, which he says seemed to spring towards the elevator from every direction. He shouted fire, and instantly all the hands abandoned their work. Policeman Wright says the whole mill seemed to burst forth into fire, and the wretched flame-beset work people ran wildly about. Then he saw the windows go up, and a shrieking woman flung herself out into Randolph Street, striking with a dull thud upon the iron steps. The crowd witnessed a thrilling sight. One after another, men and women, after vain efforts to get to the stairways, jumped or fell head foremost or flat upon the pavement. The fire alarm was pulled by Policeman Wright, but before the first engine was on the ground, the mill was furiously blazing mass, and a score of groaning victims burned or bruised were being carried to friendly shelter. There would have been more wounded, but for the fact that some of the men broke down the doors to the bridge connecting with Pierce and Landenberger's mill on 5th Street and allowed escape escape over that. Two fire alarms were sent out, the mill being a structure in which wood was plentifully used, burned furiously for an hour, and left nothing to destroy upon the upper floors, and down on the second was a heap of glowing embers. The money loss will probably foot up about $80,000, of which $20,000 will fall on Joseph Harvey, the owner of the property. Charles Landenberger has... $50,000 insurance. He had a large stock of finished goods and material. The accommodations at St. Mary's Hospital were put to a severe strain under the large accession of patients from the burned mill. Mm -hmm. Outside was a large crowd seeking somebody who had gone to work at the mill and had not returned. A burst of grief as some maimed sufferer was removed from the wagon told of the identification. Oh my goodness. And then it gives a list of some of the injured and some 
suspected to be dead. There may have been others, but in hurry and confusion, the police and reporters went, uh, were unable to trace them. Michael Larkin jumped out of a fourth-story window with only slight injuries and would have walked home had he been permitted. The burned mill was destroyed twice before, once in 1875 when used as a fish desiccating works and again in November 1877 when Welland Sons and others used it as a woolen goods factory. The Board of Fire Escapes had practically condemned it as a fire trap just before that event on account of the total lack of fire appliances and escapes. It was rebuilt without any outside ladders. At 2 o'clock this morning, the firemen discovered the charred and mangled corpses of two men and one woman under the rubbish of the third floor of the mill. It was impossible to identify them. And then they list the known dead. Oh my gosh. Just tragic. That's horrifying. Then more details came to light and as bod- and bodies were being identified. The youngest victim was 14-year-old worker Mary Matherson, daughter of Irish immigrant George Matherson. She had been working at the factory since she was 12. Nine people died either trying to escape from the fire or from the fire itself. 16 were seriously injured. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. It would soon come out that the front doors to the building that would have led to escape were locked, partly to keep intruders out and partly to keep the male hands in. So it was locked from both inside and out. Oh my God. Yeah, it's awful. Not only that, there were no fire escapes, as the article mentioned. While I do have original articles about the fire, the Philly History blog covered the event so brilliantly that I'm going to basically read some parts of it. Of course, there will be a link on the website to the full article. And it was written by Ken Finkel in 2016, The Randolph Mill Fire, Disaster, Indignation, and Recognition. A little before 10 p.m., neighbors heard the shrieks of agony and despair issuing from the building. They looked to the windows on the third and fourth floors to see the forms of men and women gesticulating frantically and screaming for aid, their retreat being cut off and the flames sweeping around them. As an eyewitness described it, the first thing we knew, down came a girl and then another and another. When the first was picked up, it was found that she had broken her back over the railing of the iron steps. The next leaped from the fourth story and was crushed out of shape upon the pavement. And so the work of desperation went on until nearly a score of victims had been cruelly and in most cases fatally injured. Kate Schaefer and Annie Brady jumped hand in hand from the third floor window. Brady died instantly. What became of the 35 others working that night shift? According to newspaper reports, no one even knew exactly who they were. Landenberger's people positively refused to furnish the list of those who were in the building when the fire broke out. Oh my gosh. Now, Mary's father, George Matherson, waited for the factory boss, Charles Landenberger, to visit the family. He never did. George was quoted as saying he might have come to see the family, as any gentleman would have done, and he never came. While many in the neighborhood and city blamed Joseph Harvey, Ali's great-granduncle, they also found Landenberger's denials of responsibility hollow. They pointed to the fact that although Landenberger claimed he begged Harvey to add fire escapes, he also didn't hesitate to send workers to the third floor. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about Charles Landenberger. At the time of the fire, he was 34, married with two young children and three servants in his home. He was a child of wealth himself as his father was quite wealthy. His daughters would have debutante balls in Philadelphia years after the incident. He was upper crust and he never had to pay for the consequences of the fire. Like literally, wow. but he faced 
no consequences in the end. That's so crazy. It is. The person who would take the fall for the loss of life caused by the fire was Joseph Harvey. You see, in 1879, a law was passed in Philadelphia requiring fire escapes. When Joseph rebuilt the er from the earlier incident in 1877, he rebuilt after this law was in effect, and he didn't add fire escapes. Now, this is from the Philadelphia Times on the 14th of October, 1881. A talk with a mill owner. Joseph Harvey, the owner of the ill-fated mills, said last night that on the fourth day of November, 1877, he had received a communication from the Board of Fire Escapes calling his attention to the fact that the means of egress from the upper stories of his mill would be insufficient in case of fire and urging upon him the necessity of erecting an outside fire escape. At one o'clock on the morning of November 5th, the day succeeding the receipt of the note, the old mill burned down, no one being inside at the time. Mr. Harvey then erected the building, which on Wednesday evening last formed the funeral pile of so many unfortunates. The building was furnished with two wooden stairways, the front one being four and the rear three and a half feet wide. A good water supply was maintained in every room, the water being forced up to the tanks by a pump connected with the engine. Mr. Harvey says that he considered the two stairways an ample means of egress in case of fire, and that he thought that by providing them in connection with the supply of water, he fully complied with the requirements of the law. He had never heard of the Act of 1879 until it was read to him by a reporter yesterday. And it's possible he didn't know about the Act of 1879. Apparently, there was a committee called the Board of Fire Escapes formed in 1876 that was discontinued even before the Act due to a lack of funds. So while they had this Act, they had nobody really watching to enforce it. Wow. A building inspector felt if the board had still existed, then the tragedy never would have taken place. Well, a coroner's inquest also found Joseph at fault. It was determined that the electric lights did in fact start the fire. On October 20th, Joseph Harvey was arrested and charged with involuntary manslaughter for the nine deaths. Bail was set at $10,000 and lawsuits were filed against Harvey. Reporters described Harvey as looking pale and worn at court. Harvey told the reporters that he had hardly slept since the fire. Harvey would face a handful of civil suits, including from George Matherson. The first one found for the plaintiff and those followed asked for non-suit or the same judgment of $4,500. His main argument, clearly a losing one, was that he was not responsible, rather Charles Landenberger was. And I found this article and I found this fascinating that Charles Landenberger never faced any consequences because of the statement here. This is from the Philadelphia Times on October 12, 1882, so a year later. Joseph Harvey himself, who was the first witness, produced his deeds of ownership of the property. It had been occupied since January 1879 by Charles H. Landenberger. Mr. Landenberger removed the back stairs between some of the floors and put in a number of partitions. So, he put in, you know, Harvey put in two sets of stairs thinking that's enough. And then his leaser takes out the stairs. That sounds smart. Wow. There had been two staircases originally, he said, one at each end of the building, which was about 20 feet long and 40 wide. The building was re-rented to the same tenant before the old lease had expired. Electric lights, and electric lights are what started the fire, had been introduced by Landenberger without any consultation with Harvey. Oh my gosh. And of course, there were no fire escapes. And so a lot at the battle was who was the owner of the building? Is it the person who actually owned the building or the one who was leasing the building and using it? 
Wow. So Joseph Harvey appealed the civil suit judgments, and in February 1884, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned the verdict, determining that Joseph wasn't technically the owner on the day of the fire that Charles Landenberger was, as he had been leasing the property for two years. And basically, the person in possession was responsible, not the actual owner. Wow. While I know he was indicted for involuntary manslaughter, I never did find out what happened to him at the criminal courts, if anything. From what I can discern from the newspapers, after the fire, Charles Landenberger went on with his life, continuing to run mills and factories. Heck, in October 1882, he gave a talk about dress manufacturing at a convention, and he died at the age of 71. But Joseph Harvey was serious when he said he didn't sleep much. The disaster changed his life forever. Some say he went crazy. At one point, he spent time at the Friends Asylum for the Insane in Frankfurt, Pennsylvania. He died at age 65, and uh, this is a trigger warning, so you might want to fast forward 30 seconds or so. This is from the Philadelphia Times on March 10, 1891. Joseph Harvey, age 65 years of Germantown, committed suicide last evening at 6.30 by hanging himself with a rope to the service pipes in the cellar of his residence. Harvey had suffered from insanity for four years, so much so that the family kept a continuous watch over him daily. For a brief period of time, the vigilant watch was discontinued, and in the temporary absence of his wife, he entered the cellar and strangled himself. She heard sobs and groans issuing from the cellar landing and hurried down immediately only to find her husband dead. Two policemen were summoned, and he was carried to the upper floor of the building. One of the neighbors saw him about an hour before he killed himself, handling a piece of rope at the rear door of his residence. Harvey was a resident of Germantown for about four years past, having removed from Philadelphia with the expectation that his failing health would improve. Wow. I mean, it's just such a sad tale all the way around. That's so sad. Okay, so we talked earlier about the Mississippi Colonization Society and that it was one of the starters of it in the area was Edward McGeehee. I found it interesting that when the Civil War started, this large plantation owner with all these slaves supported the Union. Wow. Yeah. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, Joseph and Harry's father and mother, David and Harriet Harvey, celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary by renewing their marriage vows. I found the following clip from the Philadelphia Inquirer on May 24, 1866. Golden Wedding. Mr. David Harvey Sr. and Mrs. Harriet Harvey celebrated the 50th anniversary of their marriage in the presence of their descendants to the number of more than 60 persons at the residence of their son-in-law, Mr. Adamson. Religious ceremonies were performed by Reverend William T. Eva, assisted by P.S. Talmadge. So wow. I thought that was awesome. And I mentioned at the beginning the Joseph Oswald and Ann Carter. Well, due to the Carter line for um, Lee Harvey Oswald, and Anna Carter herself. His family, Lee descended from Charlemagne. It could be documented. Oh my gosh. Which means he was a distant grandchild to King Edward I, King Henry III, King Louis VI of France, just to name a few. Oh my gosh. Other famous relations are distant cousins like President James Madison, Robert E. Lee, and Anderson Cooper. Oh my gosh. And that is the family tree of Lee Harvey Oswald. Great job, Denise. Like all the snaps. Oh, thank you. Wow. That, I mean, this was not the easiest one (laughs) to get through. 
Well, you made so much of it come alive with the stories. That was very cool. Oh, good. I was I was just excited to find such good stories because that's the most interesting part, I think. Yeah. Especially yeah. when you can find them. Well, and honestly, his family history was very, was quite varied, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I was searching for that I never found an answer to was considering his personality was so different from the mm-hmm. rest of his families. I kept looking to see if Lee perhaps had gotten, you know, a head injury at some point yeah. during his childhood, you know, yeah. that would have explained these vast differences, you know? So, yeah, the only thing I can think of is, you know, I'm trying to remember, let me look really quick is he was quite young. I mean, he wasn't raised with his dad at all. Right. Mm-hmm. So he was younger by than Robert by five years and younger than John by seven. And they probably remembered their father, at least to some degree. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that after their father died, that probably changed Marguerite a bit, mm-hmm. probably quite a bit. And then she was dropping them off and, you know, homes so she could do what she will, marrying men who, for all we know, could have been abusive. We don't have all that information. It just does make you wonder, mm-hmm. was that the difference for him versus his brothers? Mm-hmm. Not having that firm connection not or being so young and never having mm-hmm. a, a father figure around that was stayed around. So the burning question remains. Do you think he acted alone? I don't, you know, I, I think he did, but I'm not certain anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm always, I, I always waver. How about you? I'm kind of the same. Like before I started digging into it a bit, I was 100% due to acted alone. People see conspiracies and everything, mm-hmm. but it just seems, I mean, there's just some things that it has the color of conspiracy you know what i mean like there's just a lot of coincidences that Mm -hmm. you know and i do believe there are coincidences sometimes things just happen but i i don't know it just seems kind of interesting you know he had a strangely unique background and i don't know i don't know so i would say i'm probably instead of 90 percent sure he acted alone i'm more like (laughs) 70% 70% sure he acted alone. There you go. So I'm still thinking he acted alone, but I wouldn't be surprised if when Biden eventually lets go of the last remaining documents mm-hmm. that should have been released already and which he has decided to not release, um, mm. if it turns out that it was in fact a conspiracy. So it's just too hard to tell. I, I'm with you. I, I wouldn't, it's more of one of these, I, he probably did it alone, but I wouldn't be shocked to find out he didn't. Yeah. yeah. And truthfully, if he hadn't also tried to kill that general, mm-hmm. I would be maybe 50-50 on this. Yeah. But he'd already shown he was cool with killing people, you know. And if jo- if Jack Ruby hadn't killed him so quickly, mm-hmm. I don't think we would have had these questions so much. Mm-hmm. That alone made it seem suspicious to people. Right. Well, and especially with Jack Ruby having mafia connections, then it was all of a sudden, oh, the mafia is involved. And, you know, it's yeah. funny. Sam Gambino, um, he was a Chicago crime boss. I read a biography of him by like a 
grandson or something. And he claims that Sam would take took credit for it. Like, I, I it's just, it, it, you know, I'm like, well, that's an interesting take. <laughs> you know, yeah. I wasn't expecting that, you know, they were, the mafia was upset because the, the claim was in the book, you know, that they helped stuff the ballot boxes in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then on the promises of John um, Kennedy's father, Joseph Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And then John wasn't following through and actually he was going after the mafia. So now the mafia was ticked. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. So it's a different. <laughs> so you, it's, yeah. <laughs> There's all sorts of conspiracies. Has anybody, uh, you know, I was just thinking, has anybody ever stopped to consider that maybe Russia was behind it? Yeah, lots of people have. Okay, yeah, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories that it was really Russia. That, that always seems um, to me to be the most likely. Yeah, or Cuba, you know. Yeah, because they were not happy with Kennedy. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was, here's the conspiracies I don't believe. I don't think LBJ was behind it. Yeah, I don't think he was either. No. I don't mm-hmm. think the USCIA was behind it. No. As an organization. Now, could there have been like a, one who was a double agent mm-hmm. and helped? Yeah. Possibly. Or a rogue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just, those are theories I'm like, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. Do you have a book to recommend for anybody who wants a fictional account? That's kind of interesting. It's Stephen King's book, 1122, was it 112263? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. But yeah. So are you reading or watching anything interesting lately? Well, the Wheel of Time has consumed all of my waking moments. <laughs> it hasn't even started yet. It starts, though, in two weeks. And I know. There's so many cool things happening in the meantime. Amazon is like, you know, periodically dropping new trailers and new clips mm-hmm. and, you know, special photos and posters and stuff like that. So um, we're all a Twitter on Twitter of time. So that's yes. been super fun to follow. And then uh, just work has ramped up a lot. So I've mm. been focusing a lot on work. It is that time of year. How about you? Um, I've been reading Dune and I'm, I'm getting closer to the end. It's such a good book, but it does take time to read it. Mm-hmm. it, it it's, yes, it does. I mean, and the world building has been amazing and I can see it, but it just takes time. And I haven't really been watching anything. But, but you did see the movie Dune. Though, oh, right? yes. It was so good. Did you see it? Of course. Oh, my gosh. So I want to kind of see it again. You, yeah. I Well, I saw it on HBO Max. Oh. So. Um, I saw it at IMAX. I bet that was intense. It was amazing. So wow. good. And a couple of friends came with, because I do these movie nights. Zelda probably sees me posting going, hey, anybody up for a movie tonight? You know, type of thing. Because mm-hmm. $5 movies on Tuesdays. So I gather my people. And usually, sometimes I'll go by myself. I have no problem going to see a movie by myself. In fact, I love mm-hmm. doing that. But I figure, you know, if somebody wants to join me, they're more than ha- welcome to most of the time. So this was a good episode. Yeah, I think this is a really good one. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. 
You can also find us at murderousroots.com. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-O-U-S-R-O-O-T-S.com where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed. 